as soon as I left the building, my dad knew that I had the appointment and he called straight away. And I always kind of regret how I told him because I think I could have been more thoughtful. Um, but I was just in such shock. Did you just like blur On the out? phone, yeah. I just said, Daddy, it's cancer. Oh, and I think that was so hard for him to hear. And I think, like, mm. even sometimes I hear myself say it and I'm like, why would I say it like that, you know? But it just, it was kind of just, like, it just kind of came out. Welcome to Girls With Goals. I'm Neve Marr and I am absolutely delighted to welcome my guest this week. Jade McCann joins me. Jade, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so delighted to meet you in person. I've been following you on Instagram for a while and you've been really open and really honest about your health journey. And mm -hmm. I, and I want to talk about it with you, but we're going to start the same way we start every podcast. So um, it's playing our game and it's called Six Words or Less. And basically you have to describe yourself in six words or less. And it's for any of our listeners or our readers of Her.ie or viewers who may not know who you are and firstly I have to apologize because I have given you absolutely no notice <laughs> usually I tell people and I forgot that's okay so <laughs> can you can you think of six words to describe yourself and if not don't worry about it because I'm a terrible presenter for not telling you honest bubbly mm -hmm. outgoing positive like freakishly positive yeah like way too positive I would say <laughs> um hmm Mm, I'm struggling that's, now. That's four, and it, the game is six words or less, so that was incredibly well done for absolutely <laughs> no think? notice. Yeah, and I love the words. Um, so for the last year, it's been over a year, hasn't it? You've been... It's just coming up on a year now, coming yeah. Coming up on a year that you have been battling an incredibly rare form of cancer. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us first, how did you come to find out about the illness in the first place? So, like... I suppose cancer has always been in my family. Um, my dad had cancer when he was not much older than me when um, I was just born. Um, so I've always been quite conscious of like checking myself and stuff. But I have a coil and I was checking my um, wire. Yeah. And as I was coming back out, I noticed that one like side of, I call it my mini, <laughs> was just like really like, like hard. And yeah. it felt like there was like something in there. Um, so I immediately went to my GP, um, who gave me antibiotics, and then they didn't work. They told me it was a Bartholine cyst. Right. Um, I repeatedly went back and forth to the maternity hospital, who told me the same thing, gave me like constant antibiotics and increased the dose and painkillers. Um, until eventually, because I was so persistent, that's another word for me. Persistent, <laughs> Persistent. Yeah. Um, they agreed then to like surgically remove the cyst. But when they went in, they realized that it wasn't a cyst and that in fact it was a rare t type of sarcoma cancer. Um, initially we thought it was leomyosarcoma, okay. um, which is again rare. There's over 58 different types of sarcoma mm. and each of them are individually difficult to treat. Um, but then later on we found out when we got a second opinion that it was actually a thing called P-coma. So initially, well, first off, it seems like persistence is the key word here. Like you felt like there was something wrong and yeah. you like obviously knew that it wasn't right. Yeah. Like how many times did you go back until eight, eight times mm -hmm. before they finally surgically removed it? Wow. I mean, were you like, pissed off? Yeah, I was angry. I was angry because nobody was listening to me. Yeah. Um, and I mean, especially because when they did examinations, they, they wouldn't thoroughly look. They'd just be like, 
oh yeah and then like just kind of it was so flippant yeah. and I think especially because um, in this maternity hospital it's predominantly like student nurses mm. and a lot of the time the nurses that were students like they didn't know what to do like they didn't have the experience and I was angry that they were put in that position mm. but I was angry that Again, I was put in that position where I wasn't actually being seen by the doctor. Yeah. It wasn't until maybe the last time I went that the doctor saw me. And again, she diagnosed me with a Barcelona cyst, which wasn't correct. And Wow. And then, like, when you finally did get the diagnosis of a sarcoma, you know, you obviously, and your family as well, kind of quickly realised that it was incredibly rare. And, and isn't it the case that there isn't any kind of specialist sarcoma expert here in Ireland. Yeah. So you obviously went abroad looking. Yeah, well, there was a sarcoma specialist here up until about three years ago. Okay. Her name was Alexia Bertuzzi, but the HSE couldn't afford to keep her on because there wasn't enough patients. Um, wow. So they let her go when her contract went, she went back to Italy. So when we found out that I wasn't under a sarcoma specialist, of course we were livid because we weren't actually told this yeah. for the first maybe three months of me finding out I had sarcoma, we thought that we were under sarcoma specialists. Oh. Nobody mentioned that they weren't specialists. So when we found out that they that they weren't, um, obviously my mum, my mum is English, mm. so I'm really lucky in that I applied for a dual citizenship okay. and I was entitled to go to England to seek second opinions and care. So we went to Harley Street where there were, where there were sarcoma specialists. Yeah. And so, like, we're kind of talking about the, the nitty gritty of it and talking about, like, trying to find the specialist and, and finding the care but like how did you feel when you got the kind of finally after going back and going back how did you feel when you were initially told I was quite like it's so weird because I was like ha <laughs> you know I told you oh, really? initially I was really yeah like yeah. because I was I knew the whole time that something was really wrong and I kept telling them that cancer ran in my family and that there was I was really at high risk and stuff and I wasn't listened to so eventually when it did come out I was really like you know what I mean? Like, I told you so. Yeah. Um, but I suppose afterwards, I was in complete shock. Like, I left the building and I felt like I was in a movie. Like, there was, you know, when there's, like, panning, like, you can't hear anybody and, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. And I think immediately when you hear cancer, you just think, I'm going to die. Yeah. Like, that's what you think. And at this point, that wasn't the case for me. It hadn't metacized yet. Well, as far as we knew. And... Um, you know, I was just frightened. I was frightened about what they were going to do, what I was going to go through, um, how I was going to feel, um, how I was going to tell people. Yeah. You know? And, I mean, did you think about how you were going to tell your family members and, and your friends and, and how did you kind of go about that? Because I, I do want to get, get to, like, your Instagram and, and how, like, obviously you said you were honest and that element of it in a, in a moment. But first after the initial kind of diagnosis, how did you broach the subject with your extended family and friends? So what happened was, like, I'm really lucky that my family are all quite close. Mm. So I, as soon as I left the building, my dad knew that I had the appointment and he called straight away. And I always kind of regret how I told him because I think I could have been more thoughtful. Um, but I was just in such shock. Did you just, like, blur it On the out? phone, yeah. I just said, Daddy, it's cancer. Oh, and I think that was so hard for him to hear. And I think... Like, even sometimes I hear myself say it, and I'm like, why would I say it like that, you know? But it just, it was kind of just, like, it just kind of came out, you know? I and think you just obviously wanted him to know so that he could maybe... Well, he'd only been diagnosed three weeks before me. So I knew he was going to understand. Yeah. And I think I just wanted him to know because I wanted to know how to deal with it. You know, I was like, what am I going to do? Yeah. What did you do? So I think I wanted to tell him straight away. So he was the first person. And then we just drove immediately to my job. 
we handed in the cert. Um, I finished work. We drove immediately to my college. I told them that I couldn't continue. And then we drove. Well, I said to my mum, while I'm in shock, I want to get it out of the way. Because once this hits me, I'm going to be upset. Wow. And I'm not going to so be able actually, to tell anybody. So you went and like did like straight away. life yeah. things. I went straight to my job. Within an hour of being told, straight to my job, straight to my college. And then I went to my nan's house. So luckily enough, my nan... Like everyone gathers in my aunt's house. Like all my family are always there. So when I went there, like my auntie and my cousins were there. So I was able to sit down and tell everybody at the same time. Yeah, I would imagine that that was just. It was heartbreaking. Like I'm really close to my nan, mm. and especially because they'd heard the news of my dad three weeks previous. Like, you know, they all just bawled. Like we all just cried together. You know, and I yeah. think that's nice. You know, it's nice to be able to do that. Like, so yeah. I was kind of just comfortable that. I got it out yeah. and then everybody knew. So anybody who wasn't there, I asked my nan, I just said, nan, I'm going to go home and if you wouldn't mind, could you tell anybody who wasn't here? Yeah. And she made the call then. And you mentioned there your job and uh, like you were working in the media, right? Like that, yeah. that was kind of what you were planning on doing and you were also planning on going abroad and, and this kind of thing. Yeah. And so all of that just stopped. Yeah, well, I was due to go to New York maybe a month and a half later to live. Um, and I was working in um, a media company here at the time, a television company. And, like, they knew I was going. They had my notice. Everything was just in, in plan, yeah. in place. So I had to obviously just... At the time, I was like, it's just on hold, do you yeah. know? But, um, you know, all along, I kind of knew that it wasn't going to be an easy journey. It wasn't going to be simple. And so this was at, you know, the very beginning. So what were the next steps then? So what happened after that initial day when you, for some reason, went around and did all these efficient things, <laughs> which sounds so boss, by the way. And then obviously you, you sat and, and let the news kind of wash over you and your family. Mm -hmm. um, so what were the next steps? Was it second opinion time? No, not then. Okay. So I actually went through um, six, five weeks of radiotherapy here. Okay. And... I kind of listened to everybody here for a while and then after my radiotherapy I found out that they weren't sarcoma specialists. Basically the plan was at the time to do five weeks of radiotherapy, shrink the tumour and then surgically remove it, okay. which would have left me with a permanent colostomy and catheter bag. So they would have had to remove a lot yeah. down there as well. Um, that was the plan. But when I got the scan out of my radio to see where everything was at, we found out that it had metastasized to my lungs. So basically what they told me here in Ireland um, was chemotherapy, sorry, like, that's it. They basically, they were just like, that was basically what they said. They basically were like, yeah. we can give you chemo to extend your life, but, like, you know, you've got, I think they gave me nine months to 12 months to live. Oh, my God. Um, with the, that was with the Leo Maya, which, which was what we thought it was at the time. So, for me, I was like, that's not good enough. Well, you're so young, Jade, as well. Like, yeah. and obviously, like, everyone says the word cancer and it's terrifying. And But I can't imagine what that must have felt like to be, like, a 23-year-old and to have the doctor say, we're going to give you chemotherapy to extend your life and then that's the best we can do. Because, like, clearly, I've, I've known you for a few minutes and I can tell that you're a fighter. So, like, yeah. you were just like, no, this isn't good yeah, enough. Yeah, I just, like, I, like, I mean, even my mum and dad, they, like, I'm so blessed yeah. to have the parents that I have but we walked out of that appointment and I then had been transferred to a chemotherapy specialist who we had a good few meetings with and I didn't trust him and I didn't like him and at the end of every meeting he just kept telling me that the prognosis was still the same he didn't have faith in me yeah. um, he didn't want to push me to do any alternative treatments or trial treatments um, I remember actually at one point he said 
If you bring things to the table, we'll consider it. But he wasn't willing to do the extensive research to save my life. So I knew I needed a new doctor. Yeah. Um, and I think at that point, that's when we began to look abroad at maybe the different options that we could receive um, in different countries. Yeah. Maybe surgical options, other chemotherapy options, um, anything, yeah. anything at all. And so you went then, you basically said, See you later. Yeah, I basically told that doctor, I was like, we're looking abroad, and he got really offended. Like, he was like, well, they're not going to tell you anything different. Um, but funnily enough, when we looked abroad... That makes me really angry. Like, <laughs> it makes me really angry. It's your life, like... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and I, it just makes me wonder how many... Because sarcoma is predominantly, um, unfortunately, a childhood cancer and a young yeah. adult cancer. And it makes me wonder how many children and young adults have been in the same situation here in Ireland that haven't received the care that they deserve. Yeah. And that makes me angry. Absolutely. That I mean, makes me angry. Yeah. But when we went to London, the um, specialist over there had my files from here. And she was like, look, based on what I have here, I can't offer you anything else. She said, other than one chemotherapy that's available here, not in Ireland, which would give you 24 months, so an extra year. But you'd need to move to London and you'd need to stay here. And if that worked and stabilised you, you'd need to stay here again to receive the drugs. Yeah. So I have a family in London and that was an option. But like, I mean, two years of my life alone isn't worth it. Mm. I'd rather the 12 months with my family, you know? So that was kind of the way we looked at it. Now she did say, and she did flag in this meeting that, she was like, it's really unlikely that you'd have this cancer because it's predominantly maybe for women in their 60s, mm. especially the fact that it was in the vulva and then the lungs. So she was like, look, I'm going to do more tests and we'll get back to you. So when they came back, it was like, it's actually Picoma and there are more treatment options available. So it wasn't what they were telling you in Ireland? No, and when I came back and switched doctors here in Ireland, I changed specialists as well um, to one with more experience, one with more oomph, yeah. one that I really like and that really fights for me and that, you know, wishes me luck on my scans and believes in me and yeah. tries to stabilise it. Like, yeah. um, he kind of, uh, what were we saying? Sorry, <laughs> I didn't forget what we said. What's the P coma then? Oh yeah, yeah, sorry. So basically when we got under him, he we actually went to a conference. The day I found out it was P coma, sorry, I got the phone call and we were going to a sarcoma conference that night. Yeah. And I was so upset and I was like, I don't want to go. And my mum and dad were like, you're going. So I went and at that conference, there was an American doctor and there was the doctor now that I'm under. And it was why I wanted to change to him because he was doing all this active work in sarcoma research. Yeah. So I was like, he's my guy here in Ireland. Um, so this doctor was talking about all these different types of sarcoma and he had so much knowledge and I was frightened to put up my hand to ask about picoma. I was like, what if it's worse? Do you know yeah. what I mean? So I raised my hand and I was like, look, I thought I had Leomaya, but now I've got picoma. And he was so excited. He was like, oh my God, there's so many new drugs coming up for this particular type of cancer. He was like, now a lot of them are in America, mm. but we can get them here if you need to. And um, the doctor that was sitting there come to me and said, who are you under? And, you know, whatever. And he said, we're going to get that drug. And within maybe a week of me finding out that it was actually P-coma, I was then on this oral drug called Sirolimus, which I'm on now. Wow. So, like, I mean, a big change then, a big turnaround from the kind of initial prognosis that you were getting. Yeah. And so how... I mean, like, it seems kind of like a silly question, but in terms of how you're feeling now and your, you know, positivity levels and stuff about the drugs that you're on and your future, how are you feeling? Well, um, I realised that I had to take a lot of stuff into my own hands. Mm. So um, 
you know, if you want to succeed in something, obviously you've got to give it your all. Everybody knows that. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I really had to sit down and reevaluate how I thought about myself and how much I valued myself. And I know that sounds really silly, but I had to learn to put myself first and to really start to um, say no to people, yeah. focus on my diet, exercise more, sleep when I needed to. And, like, I had to learn to love myself, and I'm still doing that. Yeah. And I think it's an ongoing process, but that that's one of the things that I do with daily that really keeps me motivated and positive. I read a lot of books around um, recovery and, yeah. uh, you know, like, what are they called? Rapid remissions and yeah. things like that. I do a lot of research. But I think recently I had scans there about... A month ago now, and they showed that there is some activity. So my pelvic tumor is growing. Unfortunately, I start radiotherapy for that next week okay. to try and get it under control again. But some of my lung nodules have disappeared. Okay. And um, now two of them have grown. Okay. Now the doctor thinks that because there was time between my scan and when I started the drug, obviously because of all the research and everything like that, yeah. that maybe it grew and then the drug might have stunted it or brought it back. Mm. So I'm feeling positive because. Generally in sarcoma, the nodules don't disappear. Yeah. You know, like that's really kind of unheard of. And um, I'm just feeling like really kind of blessed that that's happening. And I'm just really happy that there is some activity. Yeah. So the options now are that if the activity continues in my lungs and we can get that under control, that we could maybe do radiotherapy on the remaining two that have grown. Yeah. Um, and with my pelvic tumor, if we can just shrink that and keep it under control, it's in my vulva, it's not gonna do any harm. So my goal is to live with cancer and to get it under such control that I can live my life normally yeah. um, and pain-free and just, you know, live normally. There's so many people. People think that cancer is life or death, but the amount of people that live with cancer, it's just a chronic illness today. Yeah. Like by 2020, one in every two people are gonna have it. And I think you gotta think about it differently. You yeah. gotta shift how you view it. And once you do that, you can learn to live with it. I think it's as well, Jade, I think like you weren't in a position in your life that you were like, okay, cool, yeah, I'll like I'll accept what's being said to me. But like you said earlier, you know, it's it scares me that maybe people have been told something and then they just accept it, yeah. you know? I mean, that's a terrifying thing mm -hmm. to think about. And the fact that it happened to you, like such a young woman who also as well has this incredible platform now whereby you're talking about it um, and you're sharing it with so many people. Like, there's lots of people who, who don't have that. And does that concern you? It really concerns me. Um, it really, really does concern me. And I think about it so much. And I think that's why I share my story so much. Mm. Um, like for example, I just wanna kind of encourage people to request more and fight for more. So for example, recently my, um, my cousin, her baby, um, we found out that the baby had a cyst on her brain. And my cousin's a young mom, she's only 20. Mm. And the first thing that she said in the appointment I was there was I want a second opinion. And for me, to have inspired her, taught her that, you know, the first answer is never good enough when yeah. it comes to your health. Always seek a second opinion. Like, she's only 20, you know, and I was just, like, blown away. And, I mean, for me to, like, it does concern me, but I take comfort in the fact that I am sharing my story in hopes that it encourages other people to fight for yeah. what they deserve. I mean, the HSE definitely needs a lot of improvement. Like, I think everybody can agree on that, including Absolutely. the HSE. Yeah. Um, but for me to be able to raise awareness around that and maybe show people that, you know, you're not stuck here. Yeah. There's a big world out there. And, you know, you're not, you don't have to accept what the first doctor tells you. Yeah. You know, and I think 
it concerns me. Like, it re like I keep saying that, and it really just frightened me. I think about it all the time, particularly with babies yeah. and kids and parents that don't have the knowledge or the strength at that time to fight for more. Um, that frightens me. On your like social media platforms, you have over 40,000 followers on oh, Instagram. Yes. So like, I mean, you were working in the media before mm -hmm. um, you were diagnosed, but when did that kind of start to, <laughs> to pick up pace? And, and how were you feeling on the one hand going through this one thing, uh, which like can absolutely and rightly so just crush a family and really like the scariest thing that I think a family can go through mm -hmm. and it wasn't just you it was your father as well mm -hmm. so like but then on on this other side of it you know this this crazy social media you know following was growing as well so how did you kind of deal with that but when did it start firstly so when I first got diagnosed I was on 12k followers and I was running the blog that's still fairly good it was Way good more than me it was good um but I obviously wanted to strive for more yeah um at the time I was talking about I was I'm a makeup artist as well in my spare time in my yeah. past life um so I was talking about makeup beauty but I was also raising a lot of awareness around mental health yeah. I suffered with my mental health right up until I got diagnosed um particularly with, uh, you know, like addiction issues and mm. depression, anxiety. So I spoke a lot about that. I talked a lot about, you know, particularly in young people mm. and tried to teach them alternatives to things. And that was really good and I love that. So when I first got diagnosed, I had this following that were really engaging and yeah. I didn't want to... I remember sitting down with Dad and going, Dad, what am I going to do? Because my followers are wondering where I am and I haven't been online. And my dad was like, Jay, just tell the truth. Yeah. Tell your truth. Um, and that for me, like, you know, really, really rang a bell and yeah. I was like, yeah, okay, I'm going to tell the truth about this, you know. And that was more to do with Dad's story too because we decided we were going to speak about his story first. Mm. And then when I got diagnosed, we were like, people are going to think I'm taking the piss, do you know what I mean? But I went on and I was honest and the more honest I was and the more I showed raw emotions, like crying and anger, yeah. the more it grew. But I think in London, when I left that appointment where she told me that I didn't have any more than 24 months, and that was with moving to London, I sat in Marleybone Station and I was roaring crying. Yeah. I don't know whether you remember that, and I was crying on camera. Yeah, I do, yeah. And I was speaking about how my mum was in the cafe and I was sitting outside because we couldn't sit together without crying. Yeah. And um, I just rang home to tell them the news and stuff. And after that, my followers, shot up mm. like I don't know whether you remember bloggers unveiled they mm -hmm. shared it and um, a lot of the bigger bloggers like Rosie Connolly yeah, yeah. Grace mm. uh, Facebook Grace everybody got on board yeah. and really helped me campaign for my GoFundMe and stuff and I'm so grateful for that like I'm yeah. so grateful but it shot up and I think I was stuck on about 36k for a while yeah and um, which is still brilliant my engagement was brilliant still is amazing I contact my followers daily yeah. I love engaging with them and hearing their stories and then recently I went on and I was crying I can't remember why I was crying I was crying about something anyway and again it shut up and I think yeah. people love the rawness of it yeah and they love when I'm honest yeah well I mean that's it Jade like sometimes you come on and you look like so glamorous and I, I saw you did a makeup tutorial um from your hospital room there mm -hmm. like a while ago and I just loved it I love makeup tutorials anyway like I, I find it so fascinating because I can't do makeup that well so I love watching people who know what yeah. they're doing um and then like the next and you were so positive and you were just chatting away and da, 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 and then like you know the next in the next day you were on and you were really upset and you were talking about you know like your mental health and I, I was watching you and it, it's really heartbreaking to watch but obviously you know you're touching a lot of people's lives and it's like it's weird because I don't know like when I watch it I feel really upset because I just can't imagine what you're going through but then 
I'm not just like dipping in and watching you. Like I watch you on your really strong, positive days as well. And so it kind of, like it really is an insight into your life. And does that kind of put pressure on you though, that you mm. feel like maybe you don't need necessarily when you're going through something like this as well? It's not that I don't need it. Um, in a lot of ways, it has been my lifeline. Yeah. Because it keeps me sane, it keeps me busy, yeah. keeps me motivated. Um, the positive messages and the short, the stories that get shared keep me, um, you know, like in this world yeah. and reminded of, you know, sometimes how lucky I am with some of the stories I hear. Yeah. Um, but it can, it can be uh, a bit of pressure. And I'm not going to lie. Overwhelming, I would imagine. It can imagine, be, yeah. yeah. Um, like sometimes when, um, it's like especially lately, I was struggling a lot with my mental health and I was recently put on antidepressants, mm. which I spoke about openly on my page and I still speak about openly. Yeah. I think if you need them, you need them. Um, but like a lot, like when I got assessed for that, one of the main factors that was kind of concerning for my counsellor was that I am constantly being noticed and watched. Mm. And on bad days in particular, I kind of feel embarrassed about maybe how I look. And people, um, sometimes I think what really, what pressures me the most and what makes me feel a bit out of sorts the most is when people stare or yeah. whatever, but don't say hi. Because I'm quite approachable and I'm like, yeah. just come over. You know, like when people congregate in groups and kind of whisper and stare, that, that kind of gets to me a little bit. But for the most part, no, like it really motivates me and it, on a daily basis, it really keeps me kind of in check. Yeah. I have to go on and check in on my feelings. I have to go on and let everybody know what I'm doing. Yeah. No, I, no, I don't have to, sorry, I worded that wrong. No. But in my mind, I think, like in order to keep myself saying I have to do that. Yeah. It's one of my daily rituals that I do. Um, but it can be pressure sometimes, especially when, for example, with the GoFundMe, mm. um, I get a lot of kind of hate and negativity. I was gonna ask, has there been much backlash? Because you've talked about it a little bit with, with the GoFundMe and I mean, you worded it in a in quite a hilarious way, to be honest mm -hmm. with you. Like I, th I thought it was pretty gassed the way you were like, do you, do you think I'm off on holidays? Like, what do you think? And mm. are people saying to you that like, you don't look sick enough and all <laughs> yeah. this kind of stuff? Like that's, it kind of blows my mind a I little know. bit. So. I was out recently having a drink um, in a nightclub beside my hometown and a, a woman actually came up mm. and she was like, oh my God, hi, I follow your blog. And I was like, oh my God, how are you? Like, do you wanna get a picture? What's the story? Like mm. talking away. And she was like, you don't look sick. And I was like, well, like, what do you want me to do? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, she was like, should you be drinking? Like, is this the money from your GoFundMe that you're using to come out tonight? Oh my God, she did not say she that. She did, yeah, to my face. And I do get a lot of people that say things like that to me, yeah. And the messages that I get as well, like some, some people actually accuse me of fabricating this whole story for the money. That's ridiculous though, like you're in hospi hospital like. <laughs> I know. So they think that you're making it up. Yeah, it? I have been accused of that, yeah. That is crazy. And what, do you respond to that or do you just go whatever? I used to and mm. it used to really upset me and I used to cry and I used to get heartbroken because I wish it wasn't real. Yeah. I wish, like nothing more in the world, I wish that it was fake. Are these people hiding behind like Yeah, fake accounts, right, yeah, so a lot of the time. They're trolls essentially. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they're not real people who are engaging with you. Some people do. Some people, there's one or two followers that 
I know their names regularly and they pop up. So for example, when I did my Reiki, um, I got my Reiki yeah. master a few weeks ago and a girl wrote to me and I was in the pub and I was having a drink while watching the football. Mm. And a girl wrote to me and I talked to her regularly, like I'd give her time. She was like, oh, I didn't think you should be drinking when you're doing your Reiki. And like, for example, like different things, like when there's a fundraiser happening um, in April in the Grand Social for my mm. fund, because once the scan is over, if this drug is exhausted, we need to go somewhere to find something that's going to work. Absolutely. And we do need to build up the funds because abroad it's really expensive. Mm. Um, and when I shared about this event, this girl wrote to me and she was like, what exactly are you spending this money on? Like, what's it going on? And I think one thing that I need to make clear is at the moment, this money is being spent on nothing. Mm. It's being archived and saved for when we need it. Yeah. And if we don't need it, and if I die before then, we're going to put it into charities that have either helped me or that are going to help somebody else in my situation. And I've made that really, really clear. Yeah. Um, but people don't seem to actually listen to that. And then they pick up on different things and tend to write in. Yeah, but sometimes there are people I recognise and sometimes the yeah. people I don't. Does that upset your family? Because yes. like it upsets me and I just can't imagine like how your dad or your mom or your gran or, or your family feel um, when people are accusing you of such like heinous things yeah. essentially. How do they cope with that kind of aspect of it? Because aside from anything they're dealing with, you know, a daughter who's sick. Mm. I think the person that it affects the most is my dad. Yeah. Um, and I think that's because he also comes on the blog with me. Mm. And I've seen him, yeah. <laughs> He's brilliant. He shares a lot of his story too. And we're both very invested in it and we both reply to followers and we both get recognised and share our experience in mm. person too. So I think um, dad, for example, went on one time and he was like, the next person to write in, he was like, I'm going to find who you are. He was like, and I'm not going to write back to you. He said, I'm going to come to your job or your house or wherever you hang out. He said, I'm going to embarrass you. Yeah. He said, I'm going to I'm going to tell everybody what you do in your spare time. And it kind of died down a bit then after that. Like, yeah. Dad, got re Dad gets really upset because I think he can see how much I love the work that I do. Yeah and how much I really invest mm. in the blog and in my Instagram and the time and effort I put into it. So when it's thrown back in my face, I think he can see how hurt I am. Yeah. And he feels everything with me, I think, because we shared the journey, you know. And your dad got good news though recently, yes. didn't he? So he is in remission at the moment. So he's um, cancer free. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he did his uh, chemo, he was stage four as well. So again, it's a it's a really hopeful story. It's Absolutely. very inspiring, inspiring for other people to hear. I think so too. Um, so I want to talk as well about the fact that you were oh just last week in recording an album as well. Like I mean, <laughs> can we just talk about the things that you're doing aside from you know obviously like living with this uh, every day? You have a documentary that's coming out as yes. well. Um, so you have cameras and stuff following you around. What's that like? Scary. Yeah. But the team that I work with. Um, I'm also producing it, so yep. they're close friends mm. and they're almost like family at this stage. And I think that was the key to getting the documentary as personal and as good as it is now. Yeah. Um, I'm so proud of the work that we've all done. But it, it is intimidating having cameras follow you. And there were days that I was really sick, yeah. um, really ill on camera. And I think it's important to show those days. Yeah. Um, it's very hard to show them on Instagram because it's only like shoulder up, you know. But I, I could, I remember there was this one day when you must have been filming something that was really emotional and that was really, really hard on you. And you came on and, you know, you said you were like, you know, the amount of followers that you have on Instagram will never equate to the happiness 
that you that you have in your life like and I think it was really it was a nice thing because like you come on and you, you tell us when you're having like bad days when it comes to your health but this was actually about the fact that like you just were not feeling happy you were going through this awful thing you were also shooting something and it just seemed like it was yeah. a loss. That was the day that we had our first screening of the documentary right. the part one so with the two part series we had just watched the first full part mm. and I had not yet seen the interviews of my mum and dad. So obviously my mum and dad were upset on camera. They were talking a lot about what would happen if I passed and stuff. Yeah. And that was so hard to watch. And especially because my dad was sitting beside me. Yeah. I was trying to hold my shit together. I was like, oh my God, don't cry. But um, it was really upsetting. And I think when I got home, I was really overwhelmed. And I was thinking, I always wanted this. I wanted, I wanted so bad to work in media and be successful in media mm. and have attention and you know a platform that I could share because I really believe that I do have a lot to share and even before I got sick yeah. um, so I think it's be careful what you wish for and that was the moment that I had where I was like oh my god like when I first got sick I was so in love with myself like in a really positive way yeah. I'd worked so hard on my mental health I was at a stage where I was comfortable to move abroad alone and um, I was living out on my own I was working my butt off I was making money mm. I was independent and I was so happy and I didn't have that many followers in comparison to what I have now and yeah. um, so I think now that I've got the everything I wished for, um, I've also got this, you know, underlying illness that has mm. depleted my mental health. It's brought me right back to where I was years ago, mentally, physically, I have challenges daily. Um, so I think, you know, it's be careful what you wish for. Yeah. And I think I wanted to really drive home that like, yes, I do have all this external success, mm. but that does not equate to how I feel. Yeah. And I wanted people to realize that because I think nowadays people think, oh yeah, like for example, Rosie Connolly, oh God, she looks so glamorous. Like, look at her car, look at her family. Like, she just had a baby. Everybody's probably thinking, oh, she's amazing. Mm. People don't know how, you know, how really her life is. Yeah. And what happens behind closed doors. And that's the same with me or anybody else that's on social media, like Ellie Kelly or anybody. Um, people can make assumptions. Mm. They can uh, comment on it. They can uh, talk about it if they yeah. want, gossip about it. But they have absolutely no idea what goes on in our lives, really. Because, yeah. again, we choose to share what we share. Um, Social media, like for everybody, and even people that don't have followers, put their best face forward. Yeah. They might filter their pictures, they might put up a status that they want to share that makes them look good, mm. whatever the case is. And I think people need to realize that we do that too. Yeah. <laughs> and that underneath it all, we have a family life that we don't share about. You know, I, there's a lot of stuff in my life that I don't share about. I mean, I don't know, you don't have to share now. Don't don't talk about him if you don't want to. But, like, you, you talk about your boyfriend on yes. your blog as well. And yeah. um, you only started seeing him kind of around the time <laughs> when this all happened. So, yeah. I mean, what was that like? Were you just, like, the same way on that day when you were kind of going to your job and going to everything, sorting it out? Were you going to just sort that out as yeah. well and be like, look, this is happening, so... I did that, yeah. That's and exactly what I did. He was in Australia at the time visiting his family. Um, we were only dating for three weeks. We'd only been on a few dates. We were quite inseparable. We, we really liked each other. We knew yeah. it was kind of going somewhere. And that day, again, we went to my nan's, all my family were there, and we dropped my auntie home. Um, and as we dropped my auntie home, my phone rang. So I stepped out of the car, and it was Bren. And he didn't know that I had the appointment. He didn't know I had the... He knew I had the surgery yeah. um, to remove the cyst. But before that, I didn't tell him anything about my health down there because I was only just dating him. I didn't think he needed to know. Fair, um, yeah. So 
when I went in for that appointment, he knew about the surgery and I just said, look, come here, some results have come back from that surgery that I got. And he was like, yeah. oh, I didn't realise there was going to be results. And I was like, yeah, um, neither did I. I was like, look, come here. I was like, it's been a great few weeks. Um, but when you get back from Australia, I want to discontinue whatever we've got going on because um, it's actually cancer. And I want to do this my own way. And I don't want to burden you, mm. um, you're really handsome, you're young, go and live, whatever you want to do, um, but you do not need to be sitting beside me through this, especially because we've only just started seeing each other. Um, so he kind of went quiet for a few days and then he came back and he was like, no, I want to be there for you. Yeah. And, you know, we had a similar conversation when it metastasized to my lungs in July. And again, no, I want to be there for you. There were times when, you know, I was in hospital and my life was being threatened and no, mm. I want to be there for you. And he's just been constant. He's been a pillar through all of this. Yeah. And I see him every day and he treats me amazing. We get on amazing. We're equal. Um, and I just, I'm so grateful for him. Like, you know, I we're mean, together a year now. You're together a year. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Um, you said earlier that, you know, you're someone who is living with cancer. Yes. And like your story, Jade, has so many different <laughs> like avenues to it yeah. and like such lows as as well as really encouraging and, and positive aspects of it mm -hmm. as well. Um, from now and kind of moving forward, is that where you're at as in, are you going to continue to live your life as somebody who is battling this, but who is not going to be defeated by it? And I mean, the fact that you're even telling people that we need to change, like we can't all be sitting around being terrified of cancer because mm -hmm. that will give it Power. It will give it power and it mm -hmm. will it will make it win essentially. Yes. So I mean, like I, I that's what I take from your story anyway, and I, I hope that like other people kind of take that too. And is that something that like you are going to look at now moving forward into the future? My plan. I'm reading a book at the moment called Radical Remissions, mm. um, and it's about uh, a lady who was a counsellor for oncology patients, and she found that some of her patients, based on their mental state. Uh, best terminal cancer yeah. and some of them didn't based on their mental state so she was really kind of intrigued and she travelled the world and did a big PhD on what were the common denominators between people that bet cancer against all odds yeah. and I'm reading that at the moment and I'm following it it's my bible yeah. and my goal is to stabilise my cancer mm -hmm. and to live my life yeah. I want to get married I want to have kids I want to travel I want to do all that stuff mm. and I think it's up here yeah. It's up here and I'm determined and I'll try anything. Like at the moment I'm on a no carb, like no refined carb, no refined sugar, yeah. like no dairy, no meat diet, just whole foods. I drink nothing but mineral water. Yeah. Um, you know, minim like like I minimize all my coffee and take everything. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm doing, doing everything. You're doing yoga every single, yes. every single day. Yeah, well I took a break now at the moment. I will get back to it. <laughs> I'm doing yoga, I meditate, yeah. I do, um, energy healing, I do Reiki, I do uh, sleep hypnosis. I do, like, I am doing everything, including all the alternative options. And I think I'm in with a chance, like, yeah. you know? If you tell yourself you're gonna lose, you are. Yeah. If you tell yourself you're gonna win, you might, you know? Yeah. And I think that's where I'm at, you know? Like, I just watched my dad beat it, like, you know? Yeah. And he just had the same mental attitude that I did. It's incredible. Jade, I'm gonna have to let you go, but I think I could like sit here and talk to you all day. Um, I find you so inspiring. I Thank think you. what you're doing on your Instagram account 
is incredible. I would imagine that everybody who listens to this already does. But if you don't, go and follow Jade McCann's story because it's incredible. And when can we see the documentary is coming out like soonish? Yes, documentary is due to come out maybe April, in yeah. April. And the album, uh, we're looking maybe toward Sorry, the end. We of like year. touched on the album and then we went back. So, so you're a singer as well. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And it's R and B. R and B at the moment, yeah. Because I would have always kind of played more acoustic stuff and yeah. piano, but I'm really inspired by Leash Keys. That's why I started to learn piano when I was a kid. And uh, this album is something that I really want to resonate with, the music that I listen to. Yeah. And I want to turn my negative experiences and lyrics into positive, upbeat, kind of Afrobeat, R&B songs yeah. that people can relate to but also tap their feet too. And I think I want to put all my heart and soul into this. Amazing. And when did you say that was coming out then? Um, I think we're looking more toward the end of the year because it's a really ongoing process, right, creative okay. process. Incredible. Well, Jay, thank you so much for coming thank in. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.